And the catch is that we're going to lose our children. They're going to grow up speaking a different language. And we're watching that unfold now. We're being offered all this free stuff, which is so very seductive. We can have everything we want. We're going to face the same thing. We're going to wake up one day and young children are going to grow up speaking a different language. That, I think, was Clark's message to us. Welcome to the Book Society. My guest today is George Dyson, who is an author and a bunch of other really interesting things that hopefully we'll get into. I found George's work from reading Analogia. Is that how you say it? That's how I would say it, but that's not how the guy who read the audiobook calls it. Okay, well, good. I'm glad we cleared that up. So from the horse's mouth, Analogia is how you say it. It's a fantastic book. It came out last year. It is sort of indescribable, but it's a brilliant history of technology and personal narrative. And I think any nonfiction author is kind of the book you hope you can write someday. It's really fantastic. Can't recommend it highly enough. Also, Turing's Cathedral and Darwin Among the Machines. So anyway, that's George Dyson. And the book that he picked today was Childhood's End, which is Arthur C. Clarke's 1953 classic, his first hit novel. Hi, George. Welcome. Yes, happy to be here. I should tell the audience, there's going to be spoilers. This book has been out for 70 years, so if you haven't read it now, you're probably not going to. If you want to read Childhood's End, it's an afternoon read. Stop this podcast, read the book, and come back. We're going to talk about it as if everybody has read it. And I might interject with some explanations for people who want to hear our conversation but aren't going to read the book. It's the book that reality became the spoiler. We sort of live in the world that Arthur C. Clarke imagined. We had this discussion, what book do I want to choose? And it was... It was very high on my list. It came out the year I was born. It's a book that I grew up with. It was on my dad's shelf. I vividly remember reading it, not getting all the kind of grown-up twists that I get now as a work of science fiction. It's fantastic. It has such a real effect. Really, 2001 was the outcome of this book. It's what introduced Arthur Clarke to Stanley Kubrick and you know, everybody else in the world. Like the best science fiction, like H.G. Wells or something, it actually affected the future. Isn't that an interesting phenomenon that science fiction tends to sort of write the future? Yeah, it's partly because the science fiction writers, they're the kind of people who are obsessed with looking at reality in that way. So Arthur Clarke had just been through World War II working on radar. He'd gone to King's College where Turing was right in the aftermath of all that. So he had exposure to all the science that was going on. He followed the V2 rocket. So he joined the British Interplanetary. So he had his fingers on all these things that were going to happen, but putting them into these works of literature sort of convinced everybody else. Yeah, so the book, it's broken into three main sections, Earth and the Overlords, which is essentially the Cold War and Aliens Come, and sort of stop the Cold War and set us on a different trajectory. Second section is the Golden Age, which is we're all living in harmony. There's one world government and we have flying cars. Then the end is the last generation. So all of this was in preparation to basically end humanity. <laughs> Big spoiler there. Sorry, guys. So in this book, we get flying cars, but we don't get the internet. So Clark's character gets the coordinates of a star that the aliens come from. But he goes in his flying car back to London to look up this star in the star catalog. I think that's one of the reasons why people don't take sci-fi seriously or as seriously as maybe you or I take it, because often the details are wrong, but the overall message and the overall ideas are more important. I mean, in Star Trek, for example... There's a lot to be learned about humanity and human nature by watching episodes of Star Trek, but you could easily dismiss it and say like, oh yeah, 300 years from now, they went back to cathode ray tubes on their starships, huh? Because of course, Gene Roddenberry couldn't anticipate everything. And it's the same with Arthur C. Clarke. The idea of the internet, while it was out there, who could have known even 
30 or 40 years ago that it would have reached the level of phenomena that it is today and the ubiquity that it has today. I don't think that damages any of the credibility of the book. When Clark wrote that novel in 1953 or when it was published, at that time, there were 53 kilobytes of high-speed random access memory on planet Earth. Like that computing was just beginning. That's a half a second of a bad MP3 recording. That was the entire computer memory on the entire planet. Now, you probably have 53 gigabytes between your laptop, your desktop, your car, an iPhone. So you personally have a million times the memory that the entire planet had. In this room, I have 128 gigabytes of random access memory. You make up for the person we can't find who has none. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Clark died in 2008, but if he were alive to see Elon Musk's constellations and the Amazon Kuiper constellation, which is about going to start going up. Those are absolutely his vision. 1945, he had this vision of geosynchronous satellites, and then you would have global communication. Wow. Yeah, who knew? Your work is as a technological historian. I would probably describe you as a chronicler because you're a primary source as well as being a historian. Yes, I look back. I'm not a futurist at all. One of the first things you learn, I'd spent a lot of time in the wilderness. The key to not getting lost is look where your path is. That's the value of historians. They kind of show us the trajectory we're on. The people who can tell you they can predict the future, they should be writing science fiction, not claiming that they're futurists. Yeah, I think when you're writing science fiction, the future has to be a setting. It's a plot point. So you have to have some sort of opinion of what it's going to be like. But that opinion doesn't have to coincide with reality. I think that science fiction at its core is about relationships and about humans. It's not really about the technology. Right. In Clark's case, sort of British society. That part has survived. Yeah, it's very British. The section called the Golden Age, which is his vision of the future if we all banded together as one brotherhood, is definitely the section that has aged the least well. To me, that's the whole key of the book. That's why I chose it, not just because it affected my childhood, but because it has this deep message for us today, which is that we're really living in this imaginary world of Clark. I mean, in his case, it was the aliens who showed up and offered humans this comfortable world, like conflict stops, you have to work 24 hours a week, and you can spend most of it on sports, you can do whatever you want. It was sort of this dream come true. And everybody laps it up, all but this cult that goes off to try and preserve human culture. But there's a catch. There's always a catch. And the catch is that we're going to lose our children. They're going to grow up speaking a different language. And I firmly believe that they, we're watching that unfold now. The, the big tech companies and you know, we're being offered all this free stuff, which is so very seductive. We can have everything we want. We're going to face the same thing. We're going to wake up one day and young children are going to grow up speaking a different language. I'm not saying that in some sort of dark way, but that I think was Clark's message to us. I hear it. I feel that. So I have young children. I have a one-year-old and a two-year-old. Our kids don't use screens at all. They've never seen television. They watched one game of the World Series, which they did not find interesting at all. And we made a conscious decision to just not make that a part of their early life. The reason was because it's addictive and it's not necessary. And I guess the effects are just not known. So it might have no effect on children. It might have a profound effect on children. I would rather have that experiment be done on other people's children and not my own. Good for you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good for me. Maybe bad for everyone else, unfortunately. And maybe bad for them. Maybe we'll find out in 20 years that being on Instagram and using smartphone apps as a child has a profound developmental advantage. 
I seriously doubt it. Doubt it, yes. My sister Esther and I, we didn't have television. I think that was a huge advantage. We just developed our imagination in a very different way. There was one line in the book where Clark throws it out as like this wild prediction. He says that the average screen time is now three hours a day in the year 2050. When Clark was writing this was 53. I mean, I guess it's not the height of the Cold War, but there was a real fear for several decades that the world might just end instantly. And that started here. And Clark's solution to it was that benevolent aliens come down and stop the whole thing. One of the things I found so interesting was the way that the aliens take control of mankind was, I mean, it was almost like the way you would train your dog. What they do is they land these ships over every major city. They don't do anything for a little while. And just the fact that they're over cities lets everybody know that this is an intelligence that knows about us because they knew exactly where to go. He describes incidents of recalcitrance. The only universal law they laid down was that you are not allowed to be cruel to animals. So you can hunt animals for food, but you can't hunt them for sport. The Spanish say, well, we're going to do a bullfight anyway. And the first lance that goes into the bull is felt by everyone in the Coliseum. And it doesn't injure them, but it makes them feel what the bull felt. And then the second incident, some country tried to launch a nuclear bomb to destroy one of the ships and just nothing happened. The overseer didn't even acknowledge it, as if a dog is barking at you from a leash. You can just keep walking. And then the third one was Johannesburg, South Africa, couldn't work out their apartheid laws at the time that was still apartheid in South Africa. And so the supervisor, the aliens, blocked out the sun for 30 minutes. And then they were like, okay, well, if they're powerful enough to do that, I guess we can figure this out. So one of the most amazing revelations from Clark in this book was that any political problem can be solved with the correct application of power. Yes. You know, there had been that dream after World War II that this would be the last war and the United Nations would come in through the League of Nations. You know, lots of things were thrown in there. It seemed that in Clark's world, marriage was different. This couple goes to get married and they agree on the number of years. So apparently, instead of just this binary, you're married or you're not married, they were going to go into the judge to get married and they agree on the number of years they're going to be married. Now you probably can renew it, but you're not in this stuck relationship for life. That was an interesting idea. Oh, I guess we should talk about who these aliens are. We probably don't want to give away the big spoiler, but we can talk about who they are, but not their form. This is one of the most brilliant things about the book. They refuse to show themselves for probably 60 years, which is two generations from now. The one person who interacts with them says, no matter how hideous you are, we're adaptable. The only alien who communicates with humans says, no, you won't. Some of you might, but you will not get used to our form and it will take you 50 years. This is just a brilliant piece of writing, right? That I'm like, what could it possibly be? That is very much paid off in the book and you should absolutely read it. Before you read the book, try to think about if aliens came to earth, what form could they take that they absolutely could not show somebody? And you won't come up with the answer. He wonders when did that idea come to him? He wrote me a couple letters Clark wrote you letters. Yeah. When my book, Project Orion, came about, of course, the publisher sent it to him. He very generously responded, gave him a great blurb that they only used part of. But then he sent me a copy of his 1945 paper about satellites. I treasure that. In Project Orion, there's a scene where Ted Taylor, who this is a true book, history, not fiction, but Ted Taylor, who's running this project, was an American bomb designer. One of his tests in the desert, he lights a cigarette with the heat from the atomic bomb in the distance. 
using a little reflector. At that time, it sold, it was sort of a toy, but it was a solar cigarette lighter. It was a little mirror and you put your cigarette in it and pointed it at the sun and it would light your cigarette. And he pointed that at the fireball and it lit his cigarette. He smoked half a cigarette and kept it in his desk. But Clark, when he wrote this nice letter about the book, he said, I love the story about Ted Taylor lighting this cigarette with the atomic bomb, but doesn't he know that smoking is dangerous? Yeah. <laughs> when did you first read this book? You said you read it when you were a kid. And how many times have you read it since? I must have read it first when I started reading. I mean, which would have been seven or eight or nine. I just started reading all the possibly interesting books in my dad's study. And this was definitely one of them. He had quite a science fiction collection. A lot of them were H.G. Wells and stuff like that. That really was pretty dense for an eight-year-old kid. But this one, I definitely remember. And of course, the title. You learn to read, and there's this book, Childhood's End. I've got to read that. <laughs> nine years old. A book about childhood's ed. I better read it. So I was very impressed by it. I read it again just now, and then I'd read it at least twice in between. I read it once in my treehouse, where again I read just enormous numbers of books, and every time I saw something different in it. Yeah, it's amazing. I read it twice for this podcast. It's deceptively good writing because it's not dense, it's not difficult, it's the kind of simplicity that you can only really achieve as a master. He was a real craftsman in the sense of the craftsmanship of writing. You have some books that are really well written, but maybe not that great on ideas. And he had both. I mean, it's both really good ideas and it's well written. But that's the thing about Arthur Clarke. I mean, he really was trained in science, which helps. Yeah. Did you say he wrote a paper about satellites? That wasn't a story? No, it was a nonfiction in 1945. There was a publication called Wireless World about radio. And he wrote this paper about... With V2 rockets, you could put up satellites. If you put them in geosynchronous orbit, you would have this relay that would connect the whole world. So that was a hugely important paper. So Arthur C. Clarke prefigured. Yes, the whole satellite. And he was credited with it. Too. Often cases where some writer thought of something and never got the credit, but everybody credited Arthur Clarke. He was there when they launched the first Telstar or whatever it was, the first communication satellite. They gave him a glass of champagne or something. He was always given credit. <laughs> what an amazing thing to invent and then go on to have a career in literature and to see it. And then Clark retired to Sri Lanka and refused to travel. He was sort of way ahead of the rest of us. He could get Clark to do interviews, but he did them all remotely. He had his own satellite TV studio and he would do these life just like we're doing now, like talking on Zoom, but he was first with that. Normally you would send a first class ticket and fly him to BBC or whatever, and he just refused to do that. You had to bring him in. Stephen Hawking did the same thing later too. You could get him to your conference, but only in this virtual presence. It's amazing the effect that that has had on the world. And I think we alluded to before that this technology is completely invisible. You and I have never met. We've corresponded. And now we're sitting here having what feels like and will be remembered in my mind as a face-to-face -face conversation. Although we're probably 1,500 miles away from each other. Without any of the ordeals you used to have to go through. Do you know why Arthur C. Clarke moved to Sri Lanka and refused to interact in society? We all remember Clark's great interest in space, but he also had a very strong interest in the ocean. One of his books was about deep sea. He probably first went on diving expeditions because it's such good diving there. And then I think he just loved it. So he somehow bought a place there and then, of course, could live very, very well. I think he just very sensibly decided, I'm going to stay here. Wow. Well, I mean, you and he have some stuff in common, it sounds like. Do you find the premise of this book to be depressing? Yes and no. I think that's what's brilliant about it. It leaves it 
to the reader, the same as the books I've written about AI. I try to do the same thing. You can take it as the end of the world or the beginning of a new world, but it's going to change everything. If the children go off to join this universal group mind and they're no longer human, it's depressing for the people left behind. They're left childless in a dead, dying world. I mean, the way the book ends is definitely depressing. We're here. It's the end of the game. But in some ultimate life as a whole, they say it's not depressing. I guess the end of childhood quite literally can be depressing. I mean, you have to go into a different world that you can never return. Yeah. And for the grownups, I suffer that every day. Now. I have one daughter who's grown up now and I'm surrounded by the relics of her, her playhouse is here. And I've got the marks, how tall she was growing up. And I just preserve these relics like they're religious, but that time is gone. But on the other hand, you have the memories. I mean, that's why the book was so brilliant, being sort of bittersweet about it. It didn't have a happy ending or a tragic ending. It just ended. It's a twist. It's not really a spoiler to say that the overlords are left behind, too. The aliens come and they take over and they rule the universe. It's like the aliens are servants of some higher thing. And that's what we got to in 2001, the film. You're given the sense of there's some higher meaning and a higher intelligence, but it's never clear what it is. That was one of the interesting things is that the overlords are technologically so far superior to us that it's beyond our comprehension. Yet we still have this ability that they don't have to join with the larger mind of the universe. Yeah, in the end, you find out that the overlords, they're just like housekeepers. <laughs> Which is an interesting statement, right? Is technology a dead end? Yeah, that again was Clark's brilliant thing and made it not about technology. And there's this strong undercurrent of panpsychism and paranormal stuff. And my father's always defended it, that we have not scientifically studied these phenomena and they should not be ruled out. There's enough evidence of this stuff what's happening with UFOs now, like there is something there. And Clark leaves a lot of room for that, that there could well be mind in the universe on a level that we don't normally connect with, but it's possible. I've said this before on the podcast, but that's my religion is simply that I don't know everything and I can't know everything. And that I'm comfortable with the fact that there may be things that I could not comprehend, even if they were explained to me. I totally agree. George, I usually ask the guests to recommend two books to our audience, one by a living author and one by a dead author. Could be anything. The Scientist Speculates by Irving John Good, known as Jack Good, and he was dead. And that's a delightful book where I think the longest piece in the book is nine pages, quite a few or half a page, where Jack Good went around who knew all the interesting scientists in the world at the time and said, look, send me your crazy ideas. So lots of parapsychology and that kind of stuff and interesting physics. It's published in 1965, and I think still an amazingly rich source of ideas. Now, a living author, I'm seeing my friend Neil Stevenson tomorrow. Who I know he's just finished a new book, and whatever it is, it will be interesting. He's as prolific as I take 10 years to write a book. Neil kind of writes a book every year or two and they just stand up so he's most famous for his book snow crash he's always got something new so whatever it is read it so the scientist speculates and neil stevenson's new book whose title we don't know yet but we're sure that it's amazing thank you george dyson for joining us thank you for recommending a great book we look forward to future books and hopefully we'll have you back one time and talk about a different book thank you and i'm happy to see all those analog instruments on your wall Hello, everyone. I am actually on vacation this week, and I really wanted to record 
this message to say that this was part one of two with George Dyson. In part two, we talk a lot about George's life. He lived in a treehouse in British Columbia. His dad was integral in the Manhattan Project and the invention of computers. And he talks about all of that in the next episode that will be out next Friday. I'm coming to you live from Wickenburg, Arizona, where I'm looking at some guys doing some roofing. It's about 115 degrees, and they're outside. There's some construction, and it's quite the scene. It's the middle of nowhere. The Book Society Podcast. Book Society Pod on Instagram. You can reach me, Lucas Cantor, the host, at lucascantormusic.com. And the reason that it's lucascantormusic.com is because I'm actually a musician professionally and a book reader on an amateur level. So my website is really more about my career as a composer. And so if you want to know about that, which is a totally different thing than my career as a podcaster, then go to lucascantormusic.com and then you can click on contact us and you'll see my email address and I think my phone number and my agent's phone number. If you want to call my agent, she's super cool. You can call her, but you could also just email me directly. That's probably easier. So Book Society podcast, Lucas Cantor Music. We have new episodes every Friday edited by Santiago Ramones, who has his own podcast called Bit Depth which is also really good. He also does some of the production, so we are both producing it together, I guess. He also mentioned something about men being by nature polygamous. Yeah, <laughs> especially British men. British men. <laughs>